The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I'd invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. We continue our study of Luke's Gospel this morning, giving attention to verses 7 through 11, Luke 14. Luke writes, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. Let someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit at the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And those who humble themselves, or he who humbles himself, will be exalted. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray, Lord. It's only by the work of your Spirit that we can understand, apply, and respond appropriately to your word. So as we give attention to it this morning, we pray that you would enlighten our eyes to see, open our ears that we might hear. Give us hearts inclined to respond. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Not long ago, I was uh, riding in a car with our chairman of elders, Jim Pitts, and we were heading to do some visiting. And I asked him, uh, what's your favorite song, Jim, of all time? He thought about it for a minute, and he said, well, Greg, this one goes back to 1980, when you were seven years old. It's written by Mac Davis. It's the song, It's Hard to Be Humble. I said, I haven't heard that one in a really long time, Jim, so I had to look it up, and I thought the chorus was remarkable. Here's what the chorus says for the song, and I thought it was so wonderful that Jim loved it. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking every day. <laughs> to know me is to love me. I must be a hell of a man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, and I'm doing the best I can. I thought that's remarkable, Jim, of all the songs. Jim didn't really say that. I just made it up. <laughs> but Mac Davis really said it. And he really sang it over and over and over again. And while we may never know if Mac Davis really thought of himself in that way, I don't know about you, but probably in your life, you have encountered people who do see themselves that way. And they make it quite obvious to you when you're in their presence. Probably, though, in some smaller way, less obvious, much more subtle, the sentiments of the song find its roots in your heart and mine. Every one of us knows what it's like to be prideful. 
It is really the ubiquitous sin, isn't it? It's the sin that's everywhere. It's the sin that shows up in obvious ways and subtle ways. It's the sin that hides underneath the surface, sometimes bubbles to the top, but quite frequently shows up in a hundred different ways, in a hundred different circumstances, and quite frankly, in ways that we're largely blind to most of the time. It is the sin that others see in us most frequently before we see it in ourselves. It is the sin that created problems for Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven. And it is a sin that has dogged humanity ever since. And as we've been studying Luke's gospel, we've seen a drumbeat over and over that the kingdom of God is a kingdom not for the proud, but a kingdom for the lowly, a kingdom for the humble. And so it's easy for us as we look at a text like we're looking at this morning and look at a theme that has recurred now a few times in Luke's gospel to sort of speak of it or think of it in the general and not the specific or to think of others who might have a problem with this that really needed to hear the sermon this morning rather than to take a long, hard look in the mirror at our own selves and ask the question, the people closest to me, the people who are most frequently acquainted with my life and my words and my behaviors, if they were to be quizzed this morning, would they say that I'm humble or that I'm proud? Which characteristic would mark my life in the eyes of others? Jonathan Edwards says this about pride. He says, pride is much more difficult to be discerned than any other corruption because of its very nature. That is, pride is a, a person having too high an opinion of himself. Is it any surprise then that a person who has too high an opinion of himself is unaware of it? His thinking is that he thinks that the opinion he has of himself has just grounds and therefore is not too high. If the grounds of the opinion of himself crumbled, he would cease to have such an opinion. But because of the nature of spiritual pride, it's the most secret of all sins. There is no other matter in which the heart is more deceitful and unsearchable, and there is no other sin in the world that men are so confident in. The very nature of it is to work self-confidence and to drive away any suspicion of evil of that kind. There's no sin so much like the devil as this for secrecy and subtlety and appearing in a great many shapes that are undetected and unsuspected. Eloquent words from Jonathan Edwards and piercing words that probably resonate the truth of your experience and mine. But over and over, we've seen in Luke's gospel, from the lips of Christ himself, this refrain, the kingdom is for the lowly. The kingdom of God is for the humble. There is no seat at the table for the prideful. There is no place in the kingdom for those who fancy themselves worthy of entrance. The only way to enter the kingdom is to bow down before the king in humility, recognizing that it's only by his grace that you find entrance, not your own worth. And again, we find this refrain here. 
We saw it back in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus said very directly to all who would hear him, in verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him do what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what it looks like to enter the kingdom. It looks like self-denial, not self-exaltation. It looks like dying to self, not exalting myself. And humbly following Christ. And we could track this all through Luke's gospel. For the sake of time, we won't this morning, because it's to this issue that once again Jesus comes back. And he comes back to it quite, quite frequently when religious leaders are in his presence, because it is a theme that they needed to hear over and over. But because the, the sin of their spiritual pride is such in nature, like Jonathan Edwards described, they'd never see it, and they never come to terms with it. And yet he reminds them in many different ways. And our text today reminds them in a very vivid way. We're simply told this to begin. If you're wanting to know how this is going to sort of uh, organize out this morning, we're going to look at what Jesus says here. He gives us a parable. He gives us then uh, sort of a, a principle. And after the principle, we're going to look at some, some sort of application. So that's what we'll do this morning. The parable is this. He says, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. We read the rest a moment ago. If you weren't with us last week, then you may not understand the setting here in Luke chapter 14, but the setting is a dinner party. It's a dinner party. And that setting runs from verse 1 all the way down to verse 24. It's a dinner party. We saw that in verse 1 last week when Pastor Kelly preached for us and we, we read this verse, one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So everything that takes place between verse 1 and 24 takes place in that context, in this dinner party at a Pharisee's house. Now, this wasn't Jesus' preferred company, but he didn't ignore the invite when he came. Even though the Pharisees, we know at this point, had very much less than honorable motives, Jesus still accepted the invitation and came. In the first six verses we saw last week, as this dinner party sort of, uh, sort of begins and the dinner party is taking place, we were introduced to a man who was attending the dinner party, a man who we're told had dropsy, this disease, degenerative disease, dropsy. Now, whether this man was a plant that was planted there in order to tempt Jesus to heal on the Sabbath, or whether he was just there for some other way or reason, we don't know. What we do know is how Jesus responds to, to his awareness of this man at the meal, even though it's on a Sabbath, and even though it is against the traditions of the Pharisees and religious leaders to heal anyone on the Sabbath because it was considered work, he violates their man-made Sabbath rules and he heals this man of this disease. And then he commences from that point on to just sort of expose the hypocrisy of these religious leaders and their stunning lack of mercy and compassion, just basic mercy and human compassion. He tells them, you let your rules get in the way of something that is most important, being merciful and compassionate to those who are suffering. And he exposes really the, the vileness of their rules. 
And in doing so, he leaves them speechless. They really have nothing to say after Jesus does this because, after all, what would you say? What do you say when your, your selfish and sinful motives has been put on display? There's nothing to say. So in the awkward silence after that, Jesus decides he isn't finished yet. It's what teachers call a teachable moment. He has their full attention and the attention of everyone else around. And so school is in session and Jesus schools them on a couple of issues that they needed some schooling on. First and foremost, pride and humility and also the nature of his kingdom. Now, we're told in verse 1 that we read a moment ago that they are, these religious leaders have got him there and they are watching him carefully. But then in verse 7, we find out that he's watching them too, just as carefully. And so there's this interesting dinner party where these hostile religious leaders are watching him in order to trap him and he's watching them in order to teach. What's remarkable is they're going to watch him as closely as they want to, and they're going to find nothing but absolute perfect righteousness in him. And he's going to watch them and find and expose their unrighteousness. And as all this is going on, there's one particular thing that catches Jesus' attention. You say, well, what is that one particular thing that he noticed? And he tells us, Luke does in verse 7, he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So Jesus is watching as they're watching him. And what does he notice about this dinner party? Well, what catches his attention about the dinner party is how everyone is jockeying at the dinner party for the most prominent seat. You know, the door's open to the party and everybody comes into the room and they're all sizing up the dinner table and they're all looking at how things are set and they're all sizing each other up and they're, they're all figuring out how they can jockey for the best seat at the table. Scrambling for the best seats, if you will. Now, this is a, a major social event. It's a dinner hosted by a, a very wealthy and prominent public religious figure. The guest of honor is a, a very well-known traveling preacher and miracle worker. This is an event that had some visibility. It would have been quite an event. It would have been an event that had a number of people present. And for an event like this in the first century, dinner is set up altogether different than how you and I set up dinner. Tonight, we're having the staff over to our, uh, to our house for dinner. I've promised them all spam figgy pudding, and they're very excited about that. But we've got the table set up, and just like you, if you host people at your home for a dinner, you probably have in a dining room in your home either a round or a rectangular-shaped table, maybe a square one, if you're a square kind of person. It probably sits about that high, you know, somewhere in here. And around that table, you have chairs that sort of tuck underneath. And the people who come and dine at your home sit in those chairs. They, they, they place the, the most cushioned part of their anatomy in that chair and slide up to the table. And they eat on the table that's in front of them, circled around or squared around or rectangled around the table. That seems so normal to us that it's hard to imagine that anyone would eat at a dinner party any way differently than that. But in the first century, it was completely different than that. When a dinner party was hosted, they had these sort of 
a couch, for lack of a better term, cushioned sort of three-person couches set up in sort of a U-shape. And three people could fit on one. And this would be sort of a picture maybe that would reflect a little bit of what that looked like. Um, although, just get past the type of art that this is, the, the setup is what I'm interested in. A U-shaped sort of table where at the very head of the U is where the host sits and around the sides of the table are these sort of couch type things where people would recline at the table, typically reclining on your left elbow and being able to you know, grab food with your right hand. Because it wasn't, you didn't have fancy utensils and all the things. You just ate with your, with your hands quite frequently. And so it looks something like this, probably larger on this particular occasion than when Jesus uh, is, is enjoying this dinner party. But what you need to understand about the setup is the most important places at the table were to the right and to the left of the host. The most important people attending who were invited sat to the right and to the left of the host. And that's how sort of the way the thing was, was set up, sort of in a, a, a laying out position, which I actually kind of like that because when you eat all that turkey on Thanksgiving, you could just roll over and take your nap right there. It's really convenient. I don't know. But the seating down the sides, you know, throughout the banquet table was done by, by rank and by importance, if you will. The most important, again, being closest to the host, but there was a pecking order that that seating went in down the line. So when you arrived, what would happen? Everybody walks into the room and they begin sizing up the table, right? And then they begin sizing up what else? You're sizing up all the other guests in the room, right? Because you have to determine your own level of importance as it relates to everybody else that's there so that you can then go select a seat that you think most fits your rank in the room, right? So you can imagine what this looked like, right? You're going into the, the place and you're sizing everybody up. Well, I'm better than that guy. I don't know where, I don't know where that one's sitting, but they're, they're further down the line than me. However you did it, you, you, you selected your seat according to the way you determined your rank among the other people who were, were there. And so Jesus is at this thing, and of course, that's not what he's doing, but he's watching it. He's watching it play out. He's watching all of these very pride-filled people look at each other and size each other up, and he's watching how they would clamor and make their way to the most important seats at the table closest to the host. And it's to that very thing that catches his attention, and he speaks. And he has something to say about this. Some advice to give to the crowd, if you will. And the first text that, that we looked at last week, he's speaking to the religious leaders. He then broadens his comments to the, to the whole audience that's there for the dinner for this next part. And because I know most of you have your Bibles already memorized, you're likely going to notice right from the start that what he says here is not unique, that it's largely just a brief exposition of Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7. You all already were ahead of me, and you realize that, right? You just nod your head, I won't know the difference. Proverbs 25, 6 and 7 says this, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it's better to be told, come on up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble, and so on and so forth. Sounds quite familiar to what Jesus says on this occasion, doesn't it? Jesus knew his Old Testament. 
But what he offers to this crowd is so clear and it's so simple that it's almost humorous, isn't it? He observes all the sort of overt and subtle ways that people are trying to get the best seat, you know, nearest to the host, the most visible. They want to be viewed as VIPs. They want to be envied by other people. They're just scrambling to get the best place, right? It's like a bunch of Baptists at a potluck. Have you ever, you're Baptist, a lot of you. You know what it's like at a potluck, don't you? Don't act like you don't know this. You know this. Nobody writes these rules down, but you know. You come to the next potluck and you'll see, you'll see. You'll see people mingling around the room, waiting on, you know, somebody to say uh, the Thanksgiving prayer uh, and say it's time to, to get your food. And there's always those who are working the room and watching their watch, right? And they're waiting for the preacher to show up. Preacher's here. And they start working their way closest to the front of the line, right? You want to, the way you want to time this, in case you don't know, is you want to be mingling around right by the head of the line when the pastor says prayer. Because then he says, amen, and you're, you're there. You're at the front of the line. The deviled eggs are still there when you get to the end of the line. You know what I mean? That's how you work it. You watch the next potluck. You'll see. That's the best place in the line first. That's what these people were doing. Except they weren't going for the deviled eggs. They were going for the seats. And they were doing it because they wanted to be viewed as important. And they wanted to be envied. Pharisees are really well known for this. Matthew 23, Jesus says on a different occasion about them in verse 6, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbis by others, right? They love these things. They live for this moment. But it wasn't just them. It was the whole crowd that had gathered this day. And Jesus can't let this go by without speaking to it. So he says to them, hey, I've got some advice for you. Here's the advice. And to make it a little less immediately offensive, he sort of sets up a fictional wedding feast. He says, let's imagine you get invited to a wedding feast. Here's some advice for you. Advice part one, don't jockey for the best seats. Do not jockey for the best seats. And he gives them an explanation for why you shouldn't jockey for the best seats if you were to get invited to a fictional wedding feast. What's the reason Jesus gives them? He says, well, because if you size up the crowd and you take your seat in a place of prominence, there's a risk that you're running. The risk is that once you're seated, somebody more important than you may show up in the room. And then what happens, right? The host is gonna walk up to you and he's gonna tap you on the shoulder and he's gonna say, excuse me, but I need you to get up. This seat belongs to that guy as he ushers that guy to that seat and thus commences the great walk of shame, right? Because then you have to get up from the table and you have to go reseat yourself somewhere else. Well, now all the other seats are taken and the only seat left is where? The worst seat on the house, way in the back. And so you got to walk past everybody all the way to the back of the table to the worst seat. And everybody's looking at you like, ah, <laughs> look at that guy. He thought he was the guy. He thought he belonged up there. Look where he's going now. All the way to the back. Must be in the back row. Right? It's the walk of shame. Instead of getting what you were shooting for, being admired, being exalted, being honored, 
being envied, what you'll end up getting is humiliated and embarrassed and ridiculed. It's better just to not go take the best seat, Jesus says, when you have this kind of environment. In, in trying to exalt yourself like that, the risk is you're going to end up humiliated. Don't do it. Part two of Jesus' advice to them is simply this. Instead of doing that, why don't you do this? Willingly choose the worst seat. When you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when the host comes, he may say to your friend, move higher up. Don't get into all this jockeying for the best seat thing of all. Just let everybody else do that. You go ahead and take the worst seat. When you take the worst seat, here's what might happen. The host is going to come in and potentially see you in the worst seat. And he's going to tap you on the shoulder and he's going to say, man, you don't belong down here. Come on, let me take you up to the front. And instead of the walk of shame from the front to the back, you're doing the walk of glory, right? The host himself is walking you past all these people and placing you in a place of more prominence. Everybody will really think you're somebody when you get tapped on the shoulder and you're escorted to a better seat. It's a better strategy. I don't know if you've ever had something like that happen to you somewhere. Back in 2020, when I was in the middle of a Navy deployment, I had the opportunity to, to come back to the United States for just a few days to go to a ceremony and, I, and, and also to, to spend a few days with my family in Washington, D.C. And I remember very vividly, there was, this was right as COVID was starting to happen, and I, I, I took a flight from London to Washington, D.C. It was a British Airways flight. And I, uh, I had, a, had been very fortunate. I'd gotten an exit row seat. And uh, so I was happy with that. I got this long you know, transatlantic flight, and I had a little extra leg room. And I put my, my bag in the overhead bin, and... It's one of those seats where the flight attendant is seated right in front of you, facing you. So it's kind of awkward if you don't talk, right? At least I think so. You don't just look at somebody and ignore them. So we're just making small talk, and the plane wasn't incredibly crowded. And she, you know, we were, I was asking where she was from, and she was asking, you know, where are you going, and so on and so forth. We made small talk, and I sat back down. And just before the, 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 uh, just as the, before the plane started pulled out and was starting to taxi, Another flight attendant comes to me, and she taps me on the shoulder, and she says, sir. I thought, oh, my gosh, what did I do? Like, she said, would you grab your bag and come with me? I said, I'm thinking, like, what did I do wrong? And she walks me up into the business class and says, we've got this seat we'd like to give you. Thank you for being a military member. And I said, praise God for the military. And I have a picture. You see my picture? I took a picture because I was so amazed. You look at all that leg room. I could have laid down on the floor. It was amazing. I didn't get a wink of sleep that whole flight. I was just like amazed. Like they took me back there and they brought me to this wonderful seat up in the front and I don't even know what to do here in this place. And I felt like a VIP. And I'm a nobody. But I got to pretend like I was for a day. It was an amazing feeling to, to be in the back and to get escorted to the front. And that's what Jesus is saying to these people. Listen, it's better to sit in the cheap seats and have the, the host come and get you and walk you up to the VIP section. That's the way to do it. If you really want to be honored, don't exalt yourself. Choose a humble seat and wait on the gracious host to honor you. Well, that's a simple story, isn't it? And it actually makes perfect sense. It, it's, so, it's so plain and it's so obvious that it's almost a little humorous. In fact, if you look at it, 
And then you're left asking the question, well, what is Jesus doing here? What is he trying to accomplish with telling this story? Is he trying to give them two helpful tips for being better hypocrites? Is that what he's after here? Is he trying to, is he trying to save the prideful from the shame and embarrassment of their pride? Of course not. Of course that's not what he's doing. He's doing, in fact, what he's always been doing, teaching them something about the nature of his kingdom. He's trying to get them to see what kind of people get a seat in the kingdom of God. And he's trying to get them to see how far away they are from being able to actually get a seat in his kingdom. And he's using this story to convey a very, very simple principle which summarizes the purpose for telling the story. And the principle is in verse 11, which simply says this, for everyone who, say this part with me, exalts himself will be, say this, humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a very simple axiom. Very simple. And it's the whole point of his story about the fictional wedding feast. You see, the men at this dinner party were, they were prideful and they were self-exalting. They were constantly exalting themselves. They all coveted the best seats and they all worked hard to earn the best seats and believed that they deserved it. And Jesus makes clear something that we need to understand as well. That kind of behavior is only gonna get them one thing, being humbled by God because God humbles those who behave in prideful ways like that. People who seek to exalt themselves, God humbles. And those who are humble, God exalts. The scripture makes this abundantly clear. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Psalm 18, 27, for you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. James chapter four, verse six, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to whom? To the humble. The kingdom of God is a kingdom for the lowly. It is not a kingdom for the prideful. It's a kingdom of people who are made up of those who are the poor in spirit. It's a kingdom made up of those who don't see themselves as worthy of a seat near the king. It's a kingdom of people who realize that they have no rank and they have no position that warrants the good seats in the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom of those who in fact realize they don't even merit an invitation to the feast at all. It's a kingdom for those who understand that their only hope is that the host would be a gracious host and take them where they don't belong. But for people who exalt themselves, people who think they're good enough to merit the best seats at God's table in his kingdom, for them, Jesus is saying something very serious. The final judgment for them will be complete and utter humiliation. 
They will be like those who, who are at the banquet who, who feel entitled to the best seat only to have the host make them get up and reseat them somewhere else except in the kingdom of God they'll be removed from the table altogether. What a devastating shock that is going to be for people like this who fancy themselves people who have earned by their good works and their religious behavior the best seats in the kingdom of God to get to the gates of the kingdom of God and hear the words, I don't know you, you don't belong at this table, you have no seat here at all. Devastating it will be. It's very similar to what Jesus taught at the end of chapter 13 when he was telling them to enter by the narrow door. Do you remember this? In verse 28, he says, be careful to enter through the narrow door. If you don't, here's what might happen. You're going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And the people will come from the east and the west and from the north and from the south, and they'll recline at the table in the kingdom of God. It's the same image. Do you see that? Reclining at the table in the kingdom of God. And he's saying to these religious Jews who think they deserve the best seats, if you don't humble yourself and enter through the narrow door, what you're going to find is that you're going to be on the outside of the kingdom altogether in your prideful self righteousness and you're going to be able to see through the window at the actual kingdom of God the people who come from the north south east and west all these humble people who are Gentiles that you hated who you've never heard of who weren't very important and they're going to populate the table while you're on the outside it's the same picture that he's painting in chapter 14 you think your shoe ins for the best seats at the table in God's kingdom but unless you humble yourself you're going to be shut out of that kingdom altogether. You're going to be on the outside looking in. And the humble will populate the kingdom and the table of the Lord. You thought you'd be the first, but you're going to end up the last. And the people who were the last are going to end up the first. That's what he was talking about. God's kingdom is a kingdom of the lowly, of the humble. It's for those who recognize their sinners who are in rebellion against God. It's for those who understand that they have no merit whatsoever to deserve God's favor. The only thing that they have is sin that deserves God's eternal wrath. It's for people who, who humble themselves before the king and who repent of their sin and who throw themselves wholly on his grace to save them. It's for those who trust in him to deliver them from their sins and to pardon them. It's for those who admit that the only way they'll ever get a seat at the king's table is that the host would be gracious to them and merciful and give them what they do not deserve. It's what it means to be a Christian. And it is the only way to enter the kingdom of God because it's a kingdom of the humble, of the lowly. There is no other way in apart from that. There's no better example, is there, of the kind of humility that Jesus is speaking about here than the life of the Savior himself. The one who's speaking these words is not somebody who's saying, do what I do, do what I say, not what I do. He is the living example of what that kind of humility looks like. Here we are, a couple weeks away from Christmas, 
And if you think about the story of the birth of Christ, which we're all to some degree thinking about and singing about this time of the year, what you realize real quickly is that everything about the birth of Christ speaks humility. There's nothing prideful about any of it. Everything that relates to the incarnation, it's a picture of humility. You look at his parents, Mary and Joseph. Who are they? They're nobodies. They're ordinary young couple. They're not exalted. They're not important. They're just ordinary people that nobody would have noticed. They're humble, young couple. Nobody that anybody would have expected to be the parents of God. Joseph, a very simple carpenter, a man who worked with his hands, a blue-collar worker. Not some sort of master craftsman or anything like that, just a, a humble woodworker. That's all he was. Just an ordinary woodworker who we don't even hear anything about after the birth narratives. Seems to have disappeared from the scene, died or something. Mary, nothing particularly important or special about her prior to God selecting her to be the mother of the Messiah. Ordinary teenage girl. They were poor. The whole event of the incarnation takes place in the context of what appears to everybody on the outside to be an unwed pregnancy which would have brought another social stigma onto them. I mean, you couldn't get much more lowly than who they were and the circumstances in which they were operating. They were about as far from society's elites as you could imagine. Just a simple, humble, ordinary couple. In the world's eyes, they were nobody. The place of his birth, Bethlehem, again, it's a place that speaks of humility. Jerusalem was the center of everything that was important. Nothing important took place in Bethlehem. It was a, a rural farming and shepherding town is all it was. It had a storied history, but at this particular point in history, it was absolutely nowhere. Nobody expected anything important to happen in that place. It's a humble, out-of-the-way, side-road town. And yet that's where the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, was born. Being born in Bethlehem wasn't humble and lowly enough. They didn't even have the best digs in Bethlehem. They get there and the inn's full. Nowhere even to give birth in a place that's the best that Bethlehem has to offer. They end up in, in some sort of an animal shelter where having given birth amongst the animals, the baby is placed in a manger, feeding trough for the animals animals noise and stink and flies and whatever the whole scene is just a scene of, of humility nothing exalted nothing important it's all lowly the only guests that show up are nobody important a bunch of shepherds who are out watching the flocks social outcasts bottom of the social structure Religious outcasts, unimportant people. That's who shows up. No fanfare, no massive welcome, no crowd that gathers, no religious scholars show up. I mean, these days when a, a royal baby is born, man, it gets all kind of fanfare. For the love of all things holy, you can't open your news right now without hearing something about Meghan and Harry. And who cares about Meghan and Harry? The only reason anybody cares is because that man is the son of a king. So paparazzi flocks around everywhere. They go and hangs on every word. But when the king of kings is born, there's nobody. Just shepherds. Just shepherds. It's humble. 
His ministry from start to finish was a ministry to the lowly. We've seen this all throughout Luke's gospel. He spoke to women, he touched the sick, he healed sinners, he dined with tax collectors and prostitutes. All the things you don't do if you want to be seen as important. It was a ministry to the humble. And there's nothing more humble than the way he died. The king of kings, the creator of the universe, brutalized and beaten by his own creation. Bloodied and tortured and nailed to a cross. Dying in all the humiliation and indignation of a crucified death. There's never been one who has gone from so high to so low as the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody. And it's that mouth that says to you and to me, humble yourself. Humble yourself before the Lord if you want to be exalted. But if you exalt yourself, God will humble you. If Christ could go from so high to so low. My friends, what right do we have to exalt ourselves? Who in the world are we? To think that we demand respect of a certain level? To think we demand, we should be able to demand a, a particular place or a particular thing? Or that we have some sort of rank or position that we can push? have nothing. Anything good that we experience is purely living on the currency of the grace of our host, the Lord Jesus Christ. What do we have to be prideful about? Our religious works? They're garbage. Our supposed morality? Who's kidding who here? None of us get it right even most of the time, much less all the time. Close with this. I ran across an article on Desiring God. It was a reflection that the author had on an essay written by Jonathan Edwards on the symptoms of pride. And the author summarized Edwards' essay by saying, here are some symptoms that you can use that Edwards lays out to help you identify and to help me identify if pride, that kind of pride is finding its root in our hearts. And I thought they were particularly piercing, symptoms of pride, fault-finding, fault-finding. Yeah. It's a result of pride, isn't it? It causes us to, to sort of filter out all the positive and good things in somebody else's life, all the goodness in other people, fixating ourselves only on their faults allowing only that to shape our perception of that person, right? Edwards writes, the spiritually proud person shows it in his finding fault with other saints. The eminently humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart that he's not apt to be very busy with other hearts. 
harsh spirit, he says. A harsh spirit. The sickness of pride can, can cause us to be the kind of person who speaks about other people's sins with contempt and irritation and frustration or judgment. It allows us to sort of glory in the failures of other people and to treat them harshly. Edwards writes, Christians who are but fellow worms ought to at least treat one another with as much humility and gentleness as Christ treats them. Superficiality, another way that pride manifests. We're so concerned about really how people view us rather than the reality of our life that we live this superficial life that's meant to paint this sort of picture so that other people will think of us in a certain way. That's pride. Defensiveness. True humility isn't, isn't knocked off balance or, or thrown into a defensive posture just because someone challenges or rebukes. Edwards writes, for the humble Christian, the more the world is against him, the more silent and still he will be unless it's in his prayer closet. And there, he will not be still. You see any of that in your life? Presumption before God, a desperation for attention, those are rather obvious, right? Prideful people like to be seen and like to be noticed and need to be needed and want to be wanted. They do all the things necessary to get that kind of attention. Pride shows up in a neglect of other people, right? We neglect those who can't do anything for us. We give attention to those who can reciprocate. Give attention to those who can give attention to us. Do things for those who will do back. But for those who are weak and those who are annoying and those who are irritating and those who we look down upon, who can't do anything for us, get neglect. All of these and a thousand other things are symptoms of pride. I'm just showing you these things and saying them because there's a temptation for you and I to end this sermon and you're wishing I would do that quickly and walk out of here and say, boy, pride really stinks. I never drilled down to where it's at in us. And what a shame it would be if we do that very thing this morning. I want to invite you, if you would, to close your eyes and bow your head. You're not invited to a dinner party today. You're not going to scramble for the best seats. But the principle is still the same. Will you, in these quiet moments, just search your own heart and ask God by his spirit to show you where pride might find root? Maybe it's in one of those seven symptoms that we showed on the screen there that, that sort of tweaked your conscience. Or maybe it's some other way that the spirit of God brings to your attention. Only this morning respond to the word of God by simply humbling yourself before the Lord, confessing that sin and asking God to uproot that pride in your heart and replace it with true humility. Lord Jesus, you amaze us. Everything about you just oozes humility from birth to death and every moment in between. The only one who could rightfully exalt himself chose to humble himself for our behalf. And yet, Lord, we confess to you, we are so, so adept 
at exalting ourselves in a thousand ways. Demanding respect, demanding attention, demanding this and demanding that. Acting as though we are owed something, that we've earned something. How foolish we are so frequently. Humble us, Lord, before yourself this morning. Show us where pride has deceived us and draw us to repentance. There's somebody here, Lord, who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. May they see this morning that your kingdom is the kind of kingdom for the lowly and that all they need to do is just turn from their sin, repent, humble themselves before you, and trust in you to be a gracious host who will save them. Not because they're worthy, not because they've earned it, but because you're good and gracious and merciful and kind and you delight to save the lowly. Would you work that miracle in this place, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.